couple things to think about by way of background. As Paul's writing this letter, we said he's trying to rebuild a healthy church. It had a good, good start, but any of you who buy a house know that you want to get a building inspection, especially to make sure there's no cracks in the foundation. And that might be a good illustration for what was going on in this church because probably the biggest problem that they had were divisions, that they just couldn't get along. They couldn't play nicely together. And, and that's, that's not just a church problem. That's a universal problem. Once Adam sinned, we inherited a corrupt disposition. And so we have this natural propensity to think that we're always right. We have this natural propensity to, to, to be selfish. And we have a propensity to think that we're better than others. And that went all the way back to Cain and Abel. Remember, Cain hated his brother and killed him. And so one of the beauties of the gospel and one of the purposes of the Lord is to show this world that the only hope to really bring people together who are from very different backgrounds is to do it around the person of Jesus. This is why Jesus said, this is how the world will know that you're my disciples, by your love for one another. Now, what wouldn't be particularly um, fascinating to the world is that people of the same social class, the same ethnic background, that they all get along. But that's nothing surprising. We all do that. We, we naturally love to be around people that are just like us. But what would shock the world is to take people from very different ethnic backgrounds, social backgrounds, class systems, and to bring them together in such a unified way that the world would go, now wait a minute, that looks attractive. And Jesus said that's what will draw people to the gospel. And if, if we're going to be honest, we would have to say in our culture, we have a long way to go, don't we? I don't think Jesus is particularly pleased that we have white churches, African-American churches, Asian churches, if we're all speaking the same language. We have messianic assemblies, and I'm not suggesting that we have any easy answers, except to say that while we, we tolerate that, imagine if we had, uh, this is a rich church. In other words, we need to see your W-2s before you become a part of that church. You'd be like, what? But interestingly, one of the divides that was taking place in this culture had to do with social status which was a big deal back then, even more so than today. So, as we look at this passage, I want to start with some background about the Lord's Supper. So, when Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper, it had two primary purposes. The one I think we do pretty well. The one is to proclaim the Lord's death. In other words, to just remind people that Jesus Christ shed His blood and His sacrifice is all that it takes to get right with God. It's not by works, but by His grace. But there's a second one, and I think we forget this one. It is also a visual symbol of our oneness in Christ. And I don't think we focus on that enough when we take the Lord's Supper. So look back with me for a moment just in chapter 10, because Paul had already dropped a hint here about the significance of this. In chapter 10, verse 17, he said, since there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. So when we come to the Lord's table, and we're going to do that in a moment, it's not enough just to look vertically to the cross and to heaven and worship Jesus, but we're also supposed to look horizontally and go, look around and recognize that that we have people from different races, ages, 
cultural, all different varieties of education and people, and remember that that is extremely important to Jesus, that we're one body. So, a couple things that, that are probably worth thinking about is when the Lord first instituted this idea of the Lord's table, this was not something new. There's a nearly universal idea that religions have what we would call cultic meals. Now, what I don't mean by that is cults have meals, but it's just normal for people, once you gather in religious settings, to have meals together. And we already saw in chapters 8 through 10 that it was a normal thing for the Corinthians to have meals together in the idol's temple. And it wasn't just social, it was also to worship the God who, who, who they were, you know, a part of that temple, whether it was to worship Zeus or Aphrodite or something like that. So with that in mind, Jesus, as he comes to earth and he institutes this, he already was piggybacking on the Passover meal. Remember, the Jews had that annual Passover meal, and they still do, and hopefully we're going to have another Seder in the future where, where, we, where we see how many of the, the Passover elements point us to Christ. But this was a once-a-year meal. But that once-a-year meal had great significance to Jewish people. So Jesus, at that Passover meal, takes that idea and, and, and takes it to a different level and a new direction. So they were used to a couple of things. They were used to the blessing of the bread. They were used to uh, eating and drinking together and celebration of the Paschal Lamb. But Jesus then instituted that we should take bread and a cup in remembrance of his suffering. So in the early church, that became known as the, the table of the Lord or the Lord's Supper. And what we're trying to do is, is, is recreate what were they doing back then? Because we just have a little tidbit, but it seems pretty clear that in the early church, they had a whole meal together. In the book of Jude, there's a term that's used there. He said, false teachers have crept into your love feasts. So they would have a dinner together. We, well, we might say, we're good Baptists. We do that too. We just call it potluck. Of course, if you've heard me preach, I don't like that. I call it pot sovereignty. What has the Lord prepared? There's no such thing as luck. But anyway, not just once in a while. It seems like each time that they gathered, they would have a meal together. And then at the end of that meal, they would have the actual practice of the Lord's Supper. So sometimes segues and transitions are important. Okay, dessert is done now. Now we're going to do the Lord's table. But here's where it got tricky. We know from archaeology back then that wealthy and poor people didn't eat together. I learned something just a few years ago from um, a couple commentaries. And you can go online. I, I went online and looked up some pictures. Wealthy people who had a big home, their dining room was called the triclinium. And you could kind of pick up from the word tri that it was, it was three-sided. You're like, that's kind of weird to, to us, not to them. So the wealthy people would sit in this triangular room and it wouldn't hold a whole lot of people and only the, the highest echelon of society would sit there and there's all kinds of articles and these aren't biblical articles just about the different pads that they would get to sit on and, and the layout. But imagine this, that in the Corinthian church, most of the people were poor. Okay, Paul said that in chapter one. There are not many rich, not many noble, not many wise. So most of the people were poor but some of them were extraordinarily wealthy. 
And those who were extraordinarily wealthy had their own home in which they had their own triclinium's. And all week long, the wealthy would eat in the triclinium and the poor would eat out in the atrium. So the atrium might have 30, room for 30 to 50 people. And they did this. This was just part of their culture and everyone knew their role. Like no, no servant would just come in and sit down on the couch and say, what are we having today? And there's all kinds of interesting articles about the difference in the quality of food, who got to eat meat. The slaves were lucky if they got horse meat. I'm just going to leave that. But the point would be, they're doing this all week long, and now, now it's time for the Lord's Supper. And so Paul becomes aware that there's something in his mind that's outrageous, that on the Lord's Day, when they would hold this meal together, they were still doing the same thing. In fact, there's some indication that perhaps some of these wealthy homeowners who were calling themselves Christians were intentionally doing this to remind the poor people, hey, know your role. Even though we're Christians, know where you fit in the scheme of things. And that, that comes out in the passage where Paul goes, do you actually humiliate those who have nothing? So as best that we can tell in recreating this scenario, the wealthy people were either starting early because Paul's going to say in this, in this passage, you need to wait for one another. So, so it's possible that the wealthy people are saying, you know, let's just, you guys show up at 9 a.m. or whatever, 3, 3 p.m. We'll have a nice meal together. We've got good wine. We've got plenty of meat. And then the slaves will arrive at 4 or perhaps even more disgracefully, is that while everybody was there, the wealthy were having this big meal, gorging themselves, some were drinking too much, and they could see the poor people out there, some of the poor people having no food. And instead of going, well, come on in, let's share together, we're one in Christ, they're, they're sort of having this attitude, stinks to be you. And so when Paul hears about this, he's incensed, and so this passage, I want you to understand about this passage. This is the passage that almost all churches read every time we have communion. I want you to understand a couple of things here. That's not the purpose of this passage. This passage is a corrective. So we need to, to remember that. Secondly, one of the things that I find disturbing, and I think it's just not good thinking, is that people say, the reason we don't have the Lord's Supper every Sunday is because we don't want it to become a ritual. And at first you're like, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I, and I don't say this to me, but don't dare say, the reason why I don't want you to preach every Sunday, Tom, is because it might become a ritual. The reason I don't want to sing every week, Tom, is because it might become a ritual. So one of the things I want you to think about is if the Lord's Supper just becomes sort of a ritual, the problem is not the Lord's Supper. The problem is both my heart, but also those who are administering it. Because I can promise you, if I preached or went to a church where the pastor preached the same sermon every Sunday, I would say, why don't we just do that once a month? If we sang the same songs every Sunday, I would say, why don't we just sing once a month? So one of the reasons why people are like, well, it's becoming a ritual, it's because almost without exception, churches get up and the pastor reads the exact same passage. It would be kind of like having your anniversary and having a speech that you read the exact same thing to your wife every anniversary. She might say, hey, could you maybe change it around? So as we're looking at this passage, bear in mind, number one, that it's not 
It's not supposed to be setting the norm, it's corrective. So there's three things we're gonna look at, and, and what's cool about this is we're actually gonna go through this, and then we get an opportunity to participate. So the first thing we're gonna do is, Paul's gonna point out in verses 17 through 22, the problem with their practice, the abuse of the poor, the problem with their practice. So in verse one of this chapter, Paul says, in giving instructions, I praise you because you're keeping the traditions. So a good parent will say to his kids or her kids, you're doing really well here, right? Always remember, don't just focus on what they're not doing well. Encourage them in what they're doing well. So in, in the beginning, he goes, I praise you for what you're doing well. And we're going to come to that next week. But now he transitions over to verse 17. He goes, but in giving this instruction, I don't praise you. Well, why not? You praised us for the other things. He says, well, I'll tell you why. Because when you come together, it's not for the better, but for the worse. Now, maybe by way of analogy, have you ever taken your wife out? I know this wouldn't happen to you, but sinners like me and Tammy, we might even have a quarrel when we're out to dinner. I mean, it might be once every 20 years, but a quarrel when we're out to dinner. And have you ever, ever had sort of this idea like, probably would have been better not even to go, right? Right, like, what? Paul goes, in this respect, it would have been better for you not to even celebrate the Lord's table because at the end of the day, you did more damage than there was delight. Oh, wow, that's, that's pretty sobering. Well, why? Paul says, for in the first place, when you come together as a church, and interestingly, in the Greek, it says, when you come together in church, somebody didn't tell Paul that the church is not a building. Isn't that funny? He says, when you come together in church, that kind of, I'm like, wait, are you, I thought the church, when you come together in, in this fellowship, now remember, they're in homes. He says, I hear that there are divisions among you. So even as they came in, they have their little cliques and their groups. Now, let's be careful here. Somebody once said the only difference between a clique and a healthy small group is whether you're in it, right? <laughs> so Paul goes, now, now let's, let's, let me just say this. I hear there are divisions among you, and in part I believe it. And he believes it because people told him what's going on. But you would think he would say, never should there be divisions. But actually, he doesn't say that. He says, factions must also be among you in order that those who are approved may become evident among you. So there are bad factions, bad division, and unhealthy distinction, but sometimes it's necessary. And I could say this, if I start preaching a false gospel, I hope that you'll divide from me. If you start preaching a false gospel, we're gonna divide from you. There are certain central things that Christians have to be aligned with. And so sometimes people go, well, why would you leave that church? I mean, aren't we all supposed to be one? There is a principle here that sometimes you have to divide from people if they're off their rocker theologically, but not over secondary issues about, you know, we can't fellowship with them. They had a Trump sticker on their bumper, you know, or they had a Biden t-shirt. We can't fellowship with them because they wear masks or they don't wear masks. Those things are wrong to divide over. But Christians are to divide over false teaching. And, if, and, and I encourage people, if you're attending a church that's preaching a false gospel, I think the Bible teaches leave. 2 Corinthians 6, Paul was talking to the Corinthians about these false teachers, and he says, come out from among them and be separate. So, having noted that, he goes, but that's not your issue. 
He says, here's your issue I'm trying to, to bring attention to. When you meet together, it's not to eat the Lord's Supper. And they're like, yeah, it is. And he goes, no, it's not. And I'll tell you why. You might in speech say it is, but I'm going to show you how in lifestyle it isn't. He says, because in your eating, one takes his own supper first. And I'm going to assume there that he's probably saying they sort of had a, a quote, text that went around to only the select few that said, come early, we're having roast beef, right? One is hungry and another is drunk. So, so Paul, as he ponders this and he's saying, look, here's a problem. He goes, what? I think, I think if he was from Philly, he would go, you talking to me? You kidding me? Right? He goes, do you not have houses in which to eat and drink? In other words, if you want to have a big meal and a roast beef, that's fine. But don't do that at the meeting place where you're going to gather in the name of Jesus. Hmm. Okay, so, so let's think about that. And then he says, or do you despise the church of God? Now, as I was thinking about that, I'm like, well, what does it mean to despise the church of God? To, to, is this intentional? The word itself means to look down with contempt or aversion, to shame. So he says, do you shame those who have nothing? And one of the things that wasn't agreed on in the commentaries, some were saying that it was by accident. Paul's gone, I know you're not doing this on purpose, but do you not realize that by doing it this way, the poor people are ashamed? But others were suggesting that they may be onto something here, is that they were, they were doing this on purpose, right? That they were literally just gone, just so you know. Because that's how, that's how that society rolled. It was a status society and honor and shame, and the poor need to be reminded to stay in their place. And Paul's going, okay, now let's think this through. That might have been what you used to do, but you're a child of God now. You're a new creature in Christ. And frankly, God doesn't care how much money you have, because in Christ, we're all equal. He doesn't care whether you're slave or free, because in Christ, we're all equal. He doesn't care if you're male or female, because in Christ, we're all equal. And so Paul goes, do you understand the implications of what you just did by shaming the poor people? So again, he says, what shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? No, I'm not going to praise you. So there's the problem. So having stated the problem, he then says, I think probably the best thing to do here is let me give you a primer. You guys remember what a primer is? Um, just, just let, let's go through the, the basics. Let me just remind you. So he goes, let's just go back to that night. Let me just remind you of what the real purpose of the Lord's Supper is. Now, for those of you that want to go deeper, it is kind of interesting to look at the things that each gospel writer does or doesn't say about the Lord's table. For example, Paul adds a commandment in here that's not in the gospels where he goes, do this, Right? That's not really stated in the gospel. Sometimes they mention the cup, sometimes they mention the blood. So that, if, if you're interested, there are some good articles and you could just say, okay, what do they share in common? But all of the early church knew these oral traditions, right? They didn't have New Testaments yet. So it was their job to, to, to rehearse and get right what Jesus said. So Paul goes, let's just do a primer to remember the purpose and practice of the Lord's table. So let's go to verse 23. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you. 
Now that, that phrase I received from the Lord, Paul's going to use that again in chapter 15. He goes, let me remind you of the gospel that I preached to you. And then he says this, I received it from the Lord. So sometimes pastors sort of like to go, not that it matters, but how big is your church, right? Why would you say that, right? Why would you say not that it matters and then ask how big? But it doesn't hurt to go, hey, not that it matters, but did you go to seminary? Not that, not that it matters, but where did you go to seminary? So Paul's answer would be, um, I went to Jesus Christ University. There is no such thing. In Galatians chapter 1, he says, I wasn't even taught the gospel by any human. He said, I was taught it by Jesus himself. Imagine having Jesus as your teacher. Oh, sorry, Jesus, um, my alarm didn't go off. He goes, yes, it did. He, Jesus knows everything, right? <laughs> so, but Paul was taught the gospel directly from Jesus. However, it's been suggested here that this part, he's not saying that Jesus talked to me, but rather he knew the oral traditions. They all received it from the Lord. But let me say something about theology here and about the gospel. There's this great desire sometimes on the part of Christians to find something new, to find something clever that no one else has ever found before. Let me just encourage you. Whenever you hear somebody telling you that they've discovered some new secret, if it's new, if it's a secret, then it's not scriptural. Because our job is not to discover something new. It's to take the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and cling to it and to pass it on to our kids in such a way that, God willing, they believe it, they embrace it, they can articulate it, and they can defend it. This is what Jude meant when he said, we have to contend earnestly for the faith which is once for all delivered to the saints. And this is really important right now because when you hear people talking about being progressive Christians, in my mind, they're regressing Christians. Because when you move away from the fundamentals of the gospel faith, you're moving away from God. And so, bear that in mind that one time a, a teacher of mine said, he heard people talking, and the one guy said, that was such a good message. And the other guy goes... <laughs> All he did was explain the Bible. I'm like, hey, I'll take that as a compliment. Just pass it on in a way that they... So I understand when people try to make it understandable or relevant or reaching culture in, in the places that they're thinking, but we don't need to come up with anything new. Just pass it on. So he said, this is what Jesus taught me. In the night in which he was betrayed, he took the bread, and when he gave thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So just real quick, I want to remind you of something. When you take communion, the first look that we're supposed to take is back to the cross. Jesus is going, listen, don't just think about me. Don't think about the little children on my knee, little ones like me sat upon his knee. No, no. Think about six hours on Friday. Think about my body, which was broken for you. And that in itself is an unending fountain of pleasure. There's no need to get bored over that. Because there's just so much in the Bible about it. Whether you want to think about his crown of thorns, his scourged back, the spear in his side, one of his sayings, just, just the richness of continually singing and thinking about and rehearsing the death of Jesus. That's called preaching the gospel to yourself. And it wasn't man's idea, it was his idea. And he wants us to do that all the time. And I would suggest that if you don't have any songs in your TikTok or in your Spotify of your skull, you need to download into your spirit songs about the gospel. Not just songs about God's mighty power, 
but songs about Jesus. And if that seems weird to you, you're not ready for heaven. Because as I've said many times in Revelation, we learn that one of the biggest themes of our songs is we're going to sing to Jesus about his sacrifice. Worthy is the lamb. You were slain. You purchased us. So, so when we come to the table, he just goes, I want you to think, see me there. So many songs. See from his head, his hands and his feet. Sorrow and love flow mingled down. So I'm just pondering his death. This is my body. This is my love. This is what I want you to think about. And he says, and in the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. And there we remember that without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness. That we remember that when Jesus hung on the cross and his blood was shed, he said, it's finished. He didn't say, now you do your part, I did mine. He didn't say, you still have to go to purgatory. He said, it's finished. And that's why we sing, what can wash away my sin? And we rehearse the blood of Jesus. And we're reminded his, his, his blood flowed red and my sins are washed white. And we just keep celebrating that. So he goes, that's the primer. Don't forget that. He said, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death. It's a visual gospel message. And I'd like to suggest that I try to do that every day. I don't even want to wait till once a, a, a week and especially don't want to wait once a month. I mean, I think every day as Christians, you should just ponder for a moment or two what Christ did for you on the cross and all the implications of that, including the fact that when he died, you died. When he was raised, you were raised. And so Paul says, keep setting your affections on Christ for you have died and been raised with him. So Jesus says, that's, that's what I had in mind. But you'll notice it says we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So he says, don't forget, there's a future element. So look back at the cross and remember what he did. But look forward. He's coming. Amen? I need to be reminded of that. If I was on fire for the Lord every moment, I would wake up every morning saying, come, Jesus, come. But frankly, in an American culture... I can get awful comfortable rather than go, come, Lord Jesus. And I find it quite convicting when Paul goes, I have this strong desire to depart and be with Christ, for that's far better. The Apostle John, come, Lord Jesus. And I'm going, what if you could press a button right now and go be with Jesus? Some of you are going, where's the button? But most of us would be like, well, and I get it. I want to raise my grandkids as much as I can, pour into them. But remember, Jesus is coming. Now, for some of you, that should be great news. But for some of you, that should be troubling news. Because if you're not ready, then that's the point. So he's given us the problem. He gives us a primer. And then finally, Paul's going to say, all right, now let me su suggest a proper way. This is what you are doing. Let's fix it. And then we're going to celebrate it. So look with me now, beginning in verse 27. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks of the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. So the third look that we take, we look back to the cross, we're like, thank you, Jesus. The devil's telling you how awful you are, and you don't have to go, no, I'm not. Just go, yes, I am. But the Lamb of God. Then I go, and Jesus is coming again. He goes, but one more look. Take a look within. Just examine yourself. He says, because if you're going to take the Lord's table, you need to think about your life. 
And what does he mean by being in an unworthy manner? The King James kind of makes it indicate that don't take it when you're unworthy. So could I suggest something? The only way to take it properly is to admit you're unworthy, right? If, if I thought I was worthy, then I wouldn't need that. The Bible says if righteousness comes through obeying God, Christ died for no reason. So what he doesn't mean is wait till you're worthy. Did you have enough devotions this week? Are you a really good Christian? Did you say lots of nice things to your wife and serve others? No, we always are not worthy, but to take it in an unworthy manner is to fail to see both the significance and seriousness of it. So when he says you're guilty of the body and blood of the Lord, I think here he, he, he's actually not referring to his own body, but look down at verse 29. He goes, you drink judgment to yourself if you don't judge the body rightly. In other words, if you have some glaring relational sin in your life, like you can't stand these people or you can't stand your spouse, and then you come to the Lord and say, be like, thank you, Jesus, for dying for me. He's going, wait, you better, you better think that through because that doesn't sit well with Jesus. Well, what am I supposed to do? Well, this is what he tells us to do. He says, examine yourself. And then he says, all God wants us to do is judge our own selves. Just repent. Just say, Lord, I was a jerk to my wife. And lean over to your wife and say, I'm sorry I was a jerk. Not right now. You don't want our heads are bowed, right? Or vice versa. Or if there's somebody in this fellowship, some churches, every time they have communion, you go, if you, know, if you need to go make something right, go over there and do that. You're like, what if people look at me? Big deal if we're too obsessed with what people think of us and what they think of the Lord. So, he says, listen, he, here's what happens. If you take communion and, and you're not right with the Lord and you're not right with one another and you're boldly just leaving sin in your life, he goes, God's not going to let you get away with that. He's going to discipline you. Now, let me remind you that you as a born-again Christian could never lose your salvation. If you're really saved, God considers you already glorified. God loves you just as you are. Do you, Pastor, you believe once saved, always saved? Yeah long as you're really saved. But I will say this, he loves you so much that he won't leave you just as you are. And so what the Bible teaches is that God doesn't judge unbelievers now. Their judgment comes when he returns and they end up in hell. But Christians, he disciplines us in this life. In other words, he gives us a spanking. Now, he doesn't delight to do this. He's not looking for a reason. In fact, he always does it out of love. But God's number one desire in our life is not my happiness, but my holiness and my Christ-likeness. And he's looking down and he's seeing these Corinthians going, you are disgracing the body of Christ. I can't let you do that. I love you too much. So look at the discipline they were experiencing. Paul says, verse 30, for this reason, many among you are weak and sick and a number have fallen asleep, which is death. Now, did they go to heaven? Yes. These are children of God. And it doesn't mean if you're sick, it's, it's because God's disciplining you. But it might mean that. But God doesn't play Marco Polo. If you're sick and you know you're a Christian and you know you have blatant, unconfessed sin, you might want to put the dots together. But on the other hand, if you're sick and you're like, Paul, I'm conscious of nothing that I haven't confessed, then don't think that God's just up there wanting to spank you. But it's worth thinking about that God disciplines us, not because he hates us, but because he wants us to walk with him. 
So Paul says, if you judge yourself rightly, you wouldn't be judged by the Lord. But if we would judge, we're disciplined by the Lord in order that we might not be condemned with the world. So brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. So cut out this sectarian, rich, poor nonsense. And if anyone's hungry, eat at home so that you may not come together for judgment. So, now we have the opportunity to partake of the Lord's Supper. Let me lead you through this. The first thing we're going to do is we're going to take a look back. So, as, as we bow our heads, just think about Jesus hanging there on that cross. And remember, th that is all you need. The Bible says he made one sacrifice for sin for all time. So take a moment and just think about him and talk to him. Thank you, Jesus. I worship you for what you did for me on the cross. That's where we'll start. Take a look back. We're going to sing in, in a few moments. Benjamin's coming. Think of that hill far away. Now take, take your eyeglasses, turn them towards your own self and take a look inside within and examine yourself. Don't be painfully introspective and say, oh, I had a bad thought two months ago. But is there glaring relational sin in your life or something that you flat out know that you're Christian and God's been telling you to stop it and you just are in a tug of war with him? Just repent and surrender that to him. It might even be something he's telling you to do and you refuse to do it. Just run to Jesus and give that to him. Surrender that. Ask him to cleanse you. If you think he might be disciplining you, respond appropriately. Lord, I get it and I'm ready to follow you. Now take a look ahead. Jesus is coming. Might be today. How do you feel about that? If you know if he came today, you wouldn't go to heaven. If you know that, then you must know the gospel. So what are you waiting for? Repent. Be willing to follow him and trust what he did for you. And if you're in deep emotional, relational pain, sorrow, depression, anxiety, it won't always be this way. The trumpet of the Lord's going to sound and time shall be no more. No more sorrow, no more pain, no more death. You've lost a loved one. It won't always be this way. Weeping lasts for a night, but an eternal shout of joy waits for all in Christ. Jesus is coming and in his presence is fullness of joy. 
Thank you, Lord, for the gospel. Help us to remember that we are one. I love that there are many different races and social classes here. As we celebrate your table and as we sing, may you be honored and glorified. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's take, I don't want to call it bread. I don't know what it is. Take the chemical compound here. And let, let's, let's just take it for a moment and just remember. Jesus said, this is my body broken for you. Imagine if he didn't do this. We're doomed. But take it in faith. There's no condemnation because of this. And then Jesus said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, shed for the remission of your sins. If you're afraid of God's condemnation, Jesus Christ shed his blood so that we don't have to perish. His, his blood will wash us whiter than snow. That's how God sees us, not as dirty, rotten sinners, but as blood-washed children of God. Our robes have been washed in the blood of the Lamb. And when we get to heaven, we're going to praise him. But while we're waiting, we praise him by faith. So let's take the cup And let's drink it in remembrance of him. And let's stand together and we're just going to sing a simple chorus. What can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Stand with me. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No. Nothing but the blood of Jesus.